Hey, Crack fans. Before we get to today's show, I want to let all of you listeners know about the revolutionary work being done by our friends over at Swing Vision. Now, all of us as tennis players are constantly searching for that piece of information that's going to give us that one, two, three percent edge whenever we step onto the court. We want to know, am I hitting my forehand with enough depth? Am I accurately placing my backhands? Am I employing patterns on the court that are putting me in an optimum position to experience success? Thankfully, all of those questions can now be answered via the app produced by our friends at Swing Vision. Folks, it's extraordinarily simple. You're going to download the app. You're going to turn that app on your phone. You're going to put your phone on the back fence, the back curtain of whatever court you're playing on. You're going to hit record. And then using artificial intelligence, Swing Vision is going to break down your performance. If you click on the link that you find in the podcast description here on today's episode, you'll go right to the Swing Vision website. And of of course, friends who use our Crack Rackets promo code CRACK20 are going to get an additional $20 discount and a free 14-day pro trial on the Swing Vision app. Again, you use that promo code CRACK20, $20 discount, as well as a free 14-day pro trial. How do you find the link? To get signed up, just go back to your podcast feed. It's in the podcast description of this episode. You go to the Swing Vision website, you set up your account, you download the app, you get rocking and rolling, get all the information one location with our friends at Swing Vision. Welcome to the Mini Brick, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Tuesday, July 19th. It's been a while, but we're back and ready to discuss everything that's unfolded over the past week on the ATP and WTA tours. Of course, I do apologize for the lack of mini break episodes over the past week. It is not because we were taking a post-Wimbledon vacation here at Crack Rackets. No, we've been busy here at CRs. We've had the privilege to do some of the coolest things I've experienced in my five-year career covering tennis over these past seven days. Of course, it starts with the Madison Keys Court of Dreams celebration of tennis event to have the opportunity to serve not only as the broadcasting partner, but as the MC for the event. It was quite the time commitment, but also the ultimate experience for us here at Crack Rackets. And I have to offer a massive thank you first to Ryan Nar and the QN family. Ryan, the event director put on just the classiest of events and to have three to 500 people drive to the middle of Iowa. I say the population of Charles City, Iowa, where the event was held, cannot be more than a couple thousand people. To see three to 500 people drive to a private grass court to watch this charity event unfold, it's a testament to just how pristine an environment that all Iowa Lawn Tennis Club provides. Sincerely, folks, such an immense scene to be surrounded by 900 acres of corn to have this perfectly manicured grass court in the center of it all. Not only was the level of tennis spectacular, not only was the environment spectacular, but it's just the sort of event we aspire to partner with here at Cracked Rackets. And again, to have the opportunity to serve as MC, get to work my material in front of a live crowd. It's an experience I will forever cherish and not soon forget. So again, a massive thank you to Ryan Nar, to the QN family, to Mark Kewen, who mows that grass court each 
each and every day to ensure it remains in top form to ensure that anyone who wants to have a grass court experience in Iowa is able to do so. I mean, a testament to, again, his love, his passion for the game. And a massive thank you not only to Mark Kewen, but to Mama Kewen as well and the entire Kewen family for hosting us over the course of the past few days. Again, to Madison Keys, Katie McNally, KP Panu, Nathan Healy. We're immensely grateful that they tolerated our nonsense as well. And if you missed anything from that Madison Keys Court of Dreams celebration of tennis event, rest easy as you can catch up on it all. Watch the replay edited replay, I should add, over on our Crack Rackets YouTube channel. I know I give him a shout out each and every episode, but sincerely, folks, we could not do what we do here at Crack Rackets without the immense efforts of our super producer, Daniel Westoff, who each and every day continues to prove to me that he is the best in the business, came up with the format, with the tech for the broadcast from scratch. And again, you can all go see it on our YouTube channel. One hell of a broadcast, one hell of a product. So as always, shout out to him for the job that he does. But as you can imagine, preparing, executing for that Madison Keys Court of Dreams celebration of tennis event, it was quite the effort for us here at Crack Rackets. As such, wasn't quite able to sneak in any mini-break podcast towards the back half of last week. Of course, as soon as that Madison Keys Court of Dream event ended, we headed right to our final SoCal Pro Circuit broadcast. And a massive thank you. It's just going to be a big shout-out podcast is what this mini-break return episode is turning into. But a massive shout-out to Christopher Boyer, Bradley Klon, the entire USTA SoCal committee for putting together six Futures events in a seven-week span was the ultimate privilege for us crack racket at crack rackets excuse me to have the opportunity to broadcast six weeks of future semifinals futures finals get a look at some of the rising stars on the ATP and WTA tours whether it be someone like an Eva Jovich 14 years old she made her first pro circuit final over the course of the six weeks in California, whether it be a player like Snow Han, a rising redshirt sophomore who won multiple singles titles throughout the course of the SoCal pro circuit, whether it be a player like an August Holmgren and Nathan Pond with. I can go on and on about the examples of players who used the opportunities provided by the SoCal pro circuit to step up. But of course, first and foremost, a massive thank you to our friends at USTA SoCal for the opportunity to broadcast the action. Again, if you missed any of it, you can catch up on it all on our Crack Rackets YouTube channel. And shout out to my friend and former ATP Top 100 player, NCAA singles champion Bradley Klon for joining us on those broadcasts. Last but certainly not least, and again, this is turning into a life update. What have I been up to? I'm sure some of you listeners are curious to know. Well, as of right now, I am recording this podcast in Tennis Channel Santa Monica Studio. That's right, folks. I have officially invaded the mothership as I have the opportunity to be on the call for T2 this week. The biggest of shout outs to my friend, super producer Michael Haston, my buddy Gil Gross, and everyone here at Tennis Channel for offering this opportunity. This morning, I called the Dominic team match. I mean, I grew up watching Dominic team. I called the Fabio Fognini match. I grew up watching Fabio Fognini and to have the opportunity to be able to broadcast and call some of their matches. It's a dream come true and it's a testament to all of you podcast listeners who have supported us here at Crack Rackets through everything any success we experience professionally is, again, a testament to all of you listeners who continue to tune in week in, week out, day in, day out, tolerate all of our nonsense here at CR and embrace us as a tennis community. So, of course, I am very much 
Looking forward to the next two weeks. I will be here in Los Angeles on the call for T2 every Monday through Friday over these next two weeks, every day. It's usually going to be that European morning shift starting about 4 a.m. Pacific time, carrying through all the way until noon Pacific. It's going to be really fun as I get this first experience here, obviously, in the Tennis Channel studios. Do I miss Super Producer Daniel Westoff? Of course I do, but to have the chance to work with the Tennis Channel team, to have the opportunity to change my daily schedule. Yesterday, I slept from 6 p.m. to 11.30 p.m. Pacific time. I then went down to the gym, got my hour and a half workout in, got my shower in, made it by my 3 a.m. call time, and then called four or five hours of matches. It was an out-of-body experience, and perhaps some of you listeners can hear the smile on my face right now. I'm having the time of my life. And again, that's a testament to all of you listeners who continue to support our efforts here at Crack Rackets day in, day out. So I apologize. I should not have taken seven minutes to explain why we didn't have a podcast over the past seven days. But I know you listeners do care about what we're up to here at Crack Rackets. And again, any growth you see out of us, a testament to you all. With that said, I'm aware it's been a while, but we're back and I'm ready to talk about everything that's happened over the past week on the ATP and WTA tours. And that is precisely what I plan on doing today. We've got about eight events to run through briefly here on today's podcast. Now, I'm not going to spend time breaking down every match, covering these tournaments from every angle. Simply put, it's probably slightly too difficult to do that over the course of the next hour. would take me three, four, five hours to talk about every observation that I made over the course of the past week. But I do want to run through the highlights as we had a couple of first-time tour winners on both the men's and women's side. We had a couple of players who continue this trend of breaking out here in 2022, continuing this trend of the generational shift we see out are the Cole Schreibers of the world, out are the Fabio Foninis of the world, in are the Sebastian Baezes, the Francisco Sarundolos of the world, those generational shifts happening most prominently at the top of the WTA Tour, but in my opinion, in the 20 through 18. 80 ranking spots in the men's and women's games. We see that trend manifesting itself most in these non-majors, non-masters 1000s week when you have 250 events, 500 level events providing playing opportunities for the hungriest of rising stars on tour. We've seen so many players capitalize on those opportunities of late. In particular, some players I want to touch on today, a couple of first-time champions on the ATP tour. It starts with Francisco Sarundolo, who we have seen said, what, since the ending of 2020, since play resumed post-pandemic, that he would be one of the rising stars in men's tennis. We were Team Francisco Sarundolo over Juan Manuel, even when Juan Manuel won that maiden ATP title at the start of last season. Took his older brother about 15 months longer, but ultimately it was Francisco Sarundolo who earned his first tour-level title last week in Bastad. And I apologize, is it Bastad? Is it Bestowed? I'll never quite get that pronunciation right. What I think we did get right here at Cracked Rackets is projecting the upside of the 23-year-old Argentinian Sarundolo, who was just exceptional down the stretch in earning his first tour title last week. Listen to his last four wins of the event. He knocks off Casper Ruud, who won, what, three consecutive ATP 250 events on clay last season. The one of, I think, three players to win three consecutive events in the past decade for Sarundolo to knock him off in three sets, but then follow that victory up with straight set wins over Aslan Karatsev, 
over Pablo Carreno Busta, over a very much informed Sebastian Baez. As we have discussed on this podcast in the past, Sarandolo just has top 50, top 25 sort of weapons, that sort of physicality as well. Again, he was an exceptional throughout the course of his run last week. I want to explain what in particular stood out on his way to the title. Of course, while he ultimately ended up in the winner's circle, I may be even higher on Sebastian Baez moving forward than I am on Sarundalo. Sebastian Baez, maybe the quietest, steadily rising 21-year-old you'll see on the ATP rankings up to a new career high, 32 this week after reaching the final in bestowed. Simply put, he's a top 15 clay court player in the world. We've been saying that for a while here on our Cracked Rackets podcast. The numbers and results continue to indicate as much as well. I want to explain why I think Baez is going to be a play a factor not only on the clay courts moving forward, but why I think this could be a big North American hard court summer for the 21-year-old Argentinian. Of course, speaking of that North American hard court summer, we've actually yet to see our first North American hard court event of this 2022 back half of the season. That said, we did have a North American event unfold last week, and it was ultimately an American man, Maxime Cressy, who I believe became the first former UCLA men's tennis player since Jimmy Connors to capture an ATP title over in Newport. Cressy, one of the biggest rising stars breakout players of this 2022 season and certainly the 25-year-old brings an old-school flair each and every time he steps on the court playing that old-school serve-and-volley style of tennis. I mean, just the relentlessness of Maxime Cressy, the pressure he puts you under each and every point, the sneaky athleticism, sneaky fluidity for a guy that size and just an innate ability to ultimately find himself in a winning position on the court, regardless of the opponent. Max Cressy just continues to frustrate opponent after opponent and ultimately uses that frustration to his advantage. Three three-set wins over his final three matches in Newport, but again, ultimately Cressy able to capture that title. I want to explain why it's not just the serve and volley that allows Max Cressy to thrive on court. Of course, that helps, but there's a lot, a lot of other nuances that go into the game of Cressy that ultimately has him now at a new career high in the rankings. Of course, shout out to Cressy as he knocked out Sasha Bublik in the finals of Newport. Want to talk about the other standout performers in what was our final tour-level grass court event of this 2022 season. Of course, all of that, just the men's action we saw unfold last week. We had two women's events uh, at the WTA tour level. Two unexpected champions, certainly, in Bernarda Pera and Petra Martic. Now, we said going into last week, if you go listen to our Cracked Rackets episode of Tennis Point Tuesday, that things were going to get funky on the women's side. It's tough to have a grasp right now with all of the absences of late. No Russians, no Belarusians at Wimbledon. Players like the Krejcikovas of the world and Mugaroos of, of the world either injured or just very much out of form and trying to work their way back into shape as we had towards the home stretch of this 2022 season. Not a ton of rhythm right now at the top of the WTA rankings. Certainly, again, last week's action in Budapest, in Lausanne, uh, indicative of that lack of rhythm. But hey, credit to Bernarda Pera, who ultimately earns her first WTA tour level title of her career. The lefty 
always a fighter, always a tricky out, hasn't often been able to get over the hump, get over the finish line, despite playing so many top-ranked players so closely throughout the course of her career, but ultimately draw broke her way in Budapest. She's able to end up in the winner's circle for the first time. And then, of course, Petra Martic, the 31-year-old, always miserable to face off against on a clay court. She was exceptional in Lausanne, earned multiple high-quality victories on her way to the title. I want to talk about why her one-handed backhand slice uh, is a particular standout with the variety she plays with uh, in this era of WTA tennis and break down all the action we saw on the women's side as well. But then, of course, still have more action to come this week. Four tournaments once again, two on the ATP side, two on the WTA side. It's funny. You think there's a lull? in the schedule post-Wimbledon, pre-North American swing, leaning up to the U.S. Open. The truth is, as always, there's never a lull on the ATP or WTA Tours. It truly is a 50 or 45 uh, week a year, 320 day a year sport. And certainly that's a privilege for us here at Cracked Rackets. It provides us plenty of content to cover, plenty of content, uh, so much content, I should say, that we're able to produce a daily show off of it. But again, jam packed podcast. I went far too long on that introduction. I do apologize for that fact. Clearly still trying to regain my rhythm as a podcaster moving forward. But again, I want to cover a little bit of everything for all of you listeners today so we can play catch up, reset things and you know refocus on this mini break podcast as we move forward through the rest of the week. Of course, the reason we're able to do all of these things day in, day out here on this podcast is because of the support we get from all of you listeners. And I've already waxed poetically enough about all of you in our initial seven-minute intro, so I will simply say a continued thank you from Super Producer Daniel Westoff and myself for all of you continuing to turn to us here at Cracked Rackets for your updates on everything happening in the tennis world. Of course, a massive shout-out to our friends over at Tennis Point as well, the lifeblood of this podcast. They've been supporting us for years, even before we used to get events like this Madison Keys charity event, even before I got the call up to places like Tennis Channel to do broadcasting at T2. Before all of that, there was our relationship with Tennis Point, and we are immensely grateful for the support Tennis Point not only offers us here on the Mini Break podcast, but the support they offer to tennis players everywhere by offering the latest and greatest products at the best prices. I'll simply say this, tennis-point.com. Use that promo code CR15. You'll get 15% off all sale items, free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls, tennis-point.com. Symbol, not the spelling, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With all of that said, intro out of the way, let's talk about the past week of tennis we've seen unfold on the ATP and WTA tours. I'm going to start with the action in Bestowed. I just think Francisco Sarundolo's rise up the ATP rankings is the single most relevant thing that happened last week. And you look for Sarundolo, who, again, so impressive on his way to the title, beats Kasparud, Aslan Karatsev, Pablo Carina Busta, Sebastian Baez. I would say those four players are four of the what? Top 20? Certainly top 30 clay court players in the world. And Sorrentolo only drops one set combined against those four men. Just served 
excellently throughout the course of last week's action. You look at his first serve percentage, he grew more and more confident with every passing match. That first serve percentage was at 54.8 against Kasparud, was at 71.1% against Sebastian Baez. You look for uh, Sarundalo, who was broken twice by Kasparud, was broken twice by Aslan Karatsev, but was broken just a total of six times in what? Nine total sets? In his final four matches, to be broken only six times in nine sets on clay courts, you're doing something right. And for Francisco Sarandolo, it starts with the plus one tennis that he's able to play. He so such condensed ground strokes on both wings. He's so compact, in particular on that backhand side. And again, I apologize for repeating myself. You're inevitably going to do that when you host a daily podcast, but we have continued to reiterate the thing that makes Sarundalo special, in my opinion, isn't the forehand, which can be an absolute slingshot, an absolute cannon off of that wing. And let's be clear, he hits the plus one forehand as well as anyone, especially on the clay courts. But to me, it's the backhand that separates Sarundalo from the rest of the pack. Simply put, he plays like someone who grew up with a lefty in his family. And I know that's an arbitrary and non-quantifiable thing to say, but, and I'm going to relate it to myself here once again, my older brother's a lefty. And from the time I was 10 years old, I would hit in in all of his private lessons. And a lot of the time we'd be playing his forehand to my backhand. As such, I am more comfortable playing the backhand wing than I am the forehand because we would always be drilling on Eric, my older brother's terms, and as such, we were always working on his forehand. As many of you may already be aware, Francisco Sarundalo's younger brother, Juan Manuel, is a lefty, and you can just see how comfortable Sarundalo is chasing down that backhand, whether it is, you know, stretch off the court outside the alley and out of his corners, his ability to drive that ball both cross court with pace, but then his ability to grow, go for broke and change direction with that backhand down the line. There's just not a lot of difference between his forehand and backhand. That backhand more than just a placeholder. He's able to turn into it, comfortably move in behind it, transition with that shot so well. I mean, again, it's just you can tell for, you know, going cross court on the backhand wings, not an issue for him as such for opponents, whether it was Kasparud, Aslan Karatsev, Kareno Busta, Baez in particular, who want to open up the court by playing inside out forehands from the ad side corner. I mean, the amount of times Kasparud's going to cheat over on that ad side to try and play the forehand inside out, inside out to open up the inside in combination. He had some success with it, no doubt about it. I mean, Sarundalo wins that match 6-4-3-6-7-5 over the top seed, Rude, and Rude's coming off of a French Open final. I think we all know his prowess as a clay court player, but he just wasn't able to do enough with that inside-out forehand, and that's a credit to Sarundalo, who with his size, Francisco Sarundalo, not necessarily the biggest guy in the world, but you look for Sarundalo, I mean, he's a comfortable, what, 6'2", I want to say, out there on court, maybe 6'1", 6'2", whatever it may be, but he's he's stocky, you know, 176, his body is filled out, and as such, he has the strength to take that ball, catch it a little bit earlier, a little bit on the rise, and whether it's drive it cross-court, drive it down the line, again, he just wasn't seated much court position at all out of that backhand corner. And then if you leave something short on the forehand, he's going to swing through it freely. That forehand, an absolute weapon. And I think we saw that at various points of the grass court season as well. And you look for Francisco Sarundalo, he went one in four, uh, one in three, excuse me, 
during the grass court season. Beats Pedro Martinez first round Queens Club, then, you know, consecutive losses to Ryan Penniston, Tommy Paul, Rafa Nadal. I said this last week, though. I thought Sorundle played excellent on the grass courts this season was clearly a step forward for him in his ability to play plus one tennis, in his willingness to follow a plus one shot forward to the net, his ability to protect that first serve. He's always been a good returner. You look for Sarundolo, who averaged a 34.7 break percentage on the challenger level. Now, of course, as you transition from the challengers to the ATP level, the first serve, the first forehands, everything's going to become that much more effective from your opponents. But as we were projecting Sarundalo as a talent moving forward, if you watched him play at the challenger level, you knew the return of serve was never going to be an issue for him. Well, the big development this year has been his prowess as a server. He's holding 76.1% of the time, which is still below the 82.5% average of top 50 players on the ATP Tour, but is also a 6% improvement from last season and you know has subsequently lifted his career hold percentage from under 70% for his career in ATP Tour level matches all the way up to 73.7%, which isn't great, but it's significantly better. And again, his ability to run around the ball, play the plus one forehand, inside in, inside out, incorporate the drop shot, move forward behind that ball. There's just no definitive weakness from Francisco Sarundolo. And again, in that final, a 7-6-6-2 win against Sebastian Baez, he had the biggest weapon on the court. His forehand was the biggest weapon on the court with how well he moves. He wasn't deterred by the Sebastian Baez drop shot. He wasn't deterred by the angle, the heaviness, the pace Baez was able to create when he spread the court with his own forehand. I mean, again, Sorrentino played flawless tennis down the final three matches in Bestowed. And, you know, you look for him against Carreno Busta, a 3-2 victory, just Carreno Busta loves to play inside out in, you know, all of these guys. Again, the combination's very similar for probably all of them, but Aslan Karatsev. They love to go inside out with the forehand, two, three shots consecutively before opening up the inside in. They just weren't able to do that easily against Francisco Sarundolo. And then, you know, again, when he was able to play plus one, broken just six times in nine matches. I'll stop repeating, uh, nine sets of tennis in those final four matches. I'll stop repeating myself, but what's the weakness? And we talk about this in tennis all the time. Maximizing your strengths is important, but perhaps even more so is minimizing your weakness because in the era of statistical tennis, in the era of everyone's watching film on everyone, it's just readily available. Your opponent's going to know your weakness and you know they're going to relentlessly attack that weakness over and over again until they can create advantages for themselves. There's just not something to routinely attack over and over again when you're facing 23-year-old Francisco Sarundolo, who's now 52-27 and 27 overall in his last 52 weeks. But you really look for him since the beginning of pandemic-era ATP Tour Tennis in August 2020. He's 99-47. He's won you know, two-thirds of 150 matches he's played over the past two seasons. And you look for him now at the ATP Tour level during this stretch of time. Francisco Sarundolo, 22-19 and 19 now. Overall, the 17 and 11 at the ATP Tour level this season. That includes quarterfinals for him in Buenos Aires, a semifinal for him in Rio, now a title in Bastad. That's just his clay court success, of course, lingering above all of it was the semifinal run he made at the Miami Masters this season. I mean, what more do I have to 
say to make the definitive case that he has been one of the breakthrough stars of this 2022 season. You look for Sarundalo now with this title under his belt. He is catapulted. He's 20th in the points race. 20th in the points race. That's ridiculous for the 23-year-old who, with his win, obviously moves up to a new career high, number 30 in the ATP rankings. He has been exceptional, and, you know, he's going to play again this week at the ATP 500. He'll take on Daniel Altmaier today. I'm actually recording this podcast as my buddy Gil Gross is on the call for T2. I just handed the baton off to him for the rest of Tuesday's action, but Certainly, if Sarundalo was the superstar, Sebastian Baez was the undercard success. And you look for Baez, who's now 61-26 and 26 himself over the last 52 weeks, a ridiculous run of success since August 2020. You look for Sebastian Baez overall. He's 105-42. and 42. So, you know, I mentioned, yeah, they've actually played a very similar number of matches. You know, Sarundalo's got, what, 90, what did I just say, 98 wins, 99 wins? He's 99-47 and 47 in his last 146 matches. Sebastian Baez now 105-42. and 42. In his last 147 matches, he's winning 71% of those battles. You look for him on clay courts during that stretch of time. I mean, he's 94 and 28 on the clay courts since September 2020. You look for him here in 2022. He's 27 and 10 on clay courts, and it's all been at the ATP level. Not once has he had to go play challengers as he had to do throughout the course of 2021. I mean, just listen to these clay court successes. Finals in Santiago, title in Estoril quarterfinal Lyon, you know, final in Bastad as well, round of 32 in Rome. He loses a tightly contested five-set match to Sasha Zverev in the second round of Roland Garros. Baez now up to number 32 in the world, which of course is a new career high for the 21-year-old. He's currently 29th in the ATP points race. You're just not going to find someone who moves better than Sebastian Baez on a clay court. And we've said this before, but, you know, the 21-year-old Argentinian who will always have comparisons drawn between him and Diego Schwartzman, they're both from Argentina, they're both shorter than five foot seven. it's not Diego Schwartzman. With all due respect to Schwartzman, there's just a little bit more pop on the racket of the 21-year-old Baez. His forehand has more drive on it. He's able to more definitively hit through a court, whether it be a clay court, a grass court, a hard court. I also like the drive more on the on the Baez backhand. Now, the Schwartzman backhand is far more dynamic. There's more action on it. It's less flat. He's able to open up angles better than Baez is, who's a little stiff on that backhand wing. And I actually thought the backhand-to-backhand exchanges is ultimately why Sarundalo was able to knock off Baez to earn the title. But Look, no slouch of a run for Sebastian Baez. Listen to these wins. I mean, again, I mentioned, what's a better slate of matches at AL Gruskin? You guys tell me, and if I was more engaged last week, I would have been able to tweet this out in the moment, but what's a better run? Beating Rude, Karatsev, Karenobusta, and Baez, or from Baez beating Davidovich Fokina, uh, beating Dominic Team, and then, you know, knocking off Andre Rublev before losing 6-2 and two to Francisco Sarundalo. I mean... Pretty equal to beat Rublev, to beat Team, to beat Davidovich Fokina. That's as good of a clay court run as you're going to find from any player throughout the course of this 2022 season, not named, what, Nadal, Djokovic, or Alcaraz. Like, I think those three guys justifiably float on a tier of their own. But after that, Baez and Sarundalo, 
Yeah, Zverev probably belong. You know, probably then Tsitsipas, Zverev, are they in that top tier? Are they in tier two? That's a good question. But if you're looking for the tier three players, you know, as you're filling out your top 15, top 10 players on a clay court, I mean, again, Kasparud, by the way, belongs in that conversation, but Sarandolo, Baez have proven they can be and are as good as any players in the world right now on clay court. Sebastian Baez, another one of your clear-cut breakout stars. Now, look, the serve is always going to be a struggle for Baez, regardless of the surface, and you look for Baez holding 76% of the time this year. That number actually amplified on the clay courts. He gets up to 77.1%, but the big number for Baez is the break percentage. You look for Sebastian Baez, who's top six right Right now on the ATP Tour in break percentage, he's breaking 30.4% of the time. That's actually tied with Rafael Nadal for sixth place on the ATP Stats leaderboard via our friends at Tennis Abstract. But I mean, again, yes, he lacks in size, but the depth, the action, the different angles, the variety Baez can play with on the forehand, and then the steadiness of his backhand, his willingness to move forward. I think he's exceptional as a volleyer. I actually think he's better as a volleyer and more a more willing volleyer than Diego Schwartzman, even at this point of Schwartzman's career. I'm all in on Sebastian Baez. I'm all in on Argentinian men's tennis. I mean, you look right now in the top 50. You've got 15-year-old, uh, 15-year-old. You've got number 15, Diego Schwartzman, number 29, Sebastian Baez. You've got Francisco Sarundolo, obviously flying up the rank. Uh, excuse me, number 32, Sebastian Baez. You've got number 31, Sebastian Baez in the live rankings, number 30, Francisco Sarundolo up there as well. You've got other rising stars like Tomas Martin Echeverry, Pedro Cachin, and you know Juan Manuel Sarundolo, Juan Pablo Vicovic. A bunch of talented Argentinian players. I think Argentinians right now have the most ATP challenger titles this season of every country. And, you know, again, it was less than 24 months ago. Sarundalo Baez could have been a, a final at a challenger level event. Now it was a definitive final in Bastad, and I thought both players looked exceptional throughout the course of the week. They both belong clearly in the ATP top 50, I think. They both belong in the top 35 and should be seated at the slams moving forward, which, by the way, their success now indicates that's exactly going to be the case. But shout out to Andre Rublev, who hadn't played a tournament since Hala, gets good wins over Korea, over Jur before getting knocked out by Baez. What was so fascinating to me is to see how difficult it was for Rublev to overwhelm Baez. I mean, you think with the heavy top spin, the pace and the rotation on the Rublev ball, it would have overwhelmed the... Height challenged is the polite way of saying Sebastian Baez, but no, Baez's athleticism, his ability to take the ball on the short hop, his ability to dictate against Andre Rublev, force Rublev, you know, spread the court, force Rublev to be constantly hitting on the move. A testament to the performance of Baez more than anything. I thought Rublev did poorly. It was good to see Rublev. Yeah, I thought he looked pretty good in his first tournament in about a month. And, you know, on the the other side of the semifinals, look, Pablo Carreno Busta going to Pablo Carreno Busta. You look for uh, Carreno Busta here this season. Actually, a tough season for him on the clay courts. Went 11-8 and eight overall by record, but... If you actually look at the results that he played, you know, finals in Barcelona where he was knocked out by Alcaraz. Semifinals knocked off, uh, obviously, here in Bestowed by Sarundolo. Bad loss for him, no doubt, at Roland Garros to Jill Simone. Not the greatest loss to Federico Coria either in Lyon, but you look for Crano Busta, 22-16 and 16 overall on the season in terms of where he's at in the points race. I mean... Actually, surprisingly low 
is Carreno Booster right now. Nah, he's held fairly steady. Uh, you know, currently at 21 in the points race. That feels about right. Still a top 25 guy. You know, when he plays his best, he can look like number 15, but that 10 to thir- or 11 to 30 range probably where Carreno Bo- Busta will continue to float throughout the remainder of the prime of his career. But again, you know, those are your notable performances from a semifinal perspective. As we talk about the week look ahead, I'll talk more about Dominic Team, who certainly had a great week on paper and I thought looked better and better in every match that he played. We got a bunch of three setters under his belt last week. You know, 7-6 in the third win over Rusa Vori, 6-4 in the third win over Bautista Goop before getting knocked out in three sets by Sebastian Baez. I mean, that's the best thing that can happen to Dominic team, forcing him to get calloused up, forcing him to be extended physically, a reminder of what it's like when you play, you know, each of his matches went over two and a half hours. Welcome back to two and a half hours of ATP tour level tennis. And yet felt like he got more and more effective behind the first serve with his plus one ball with every match that he played. And of course that plus one tennis, a staple of success for Dominic team, who's plus one forehand ability to explode through the backhand wing, even with one hand. That's what makes him special. That's what's allowed him to win a grand slam title, be a perennial top 10 player throughout the course of his career. Again, he doesn't quite have his legs under him. He'll make, he'll hit a horrible forehand error about every fourth point right now or just an inexplicable error, whether it be some sort of drop shot or some sort of decision you make when you've missed, you know, eight plus months of high level tennis. That said, team looks better and better with every passing match. And, you know, I thought played his best set of tennis maybe in his comeback run today against Hugo Gaston. He fights off a match point to ultimately win seven six in the third. I mean you look for Dominic team now four and nine overall on the season, but he lost his first seven matches here of 2022 and has slowly but surely worked his way back into form and, you know, has a pretty nice draw this week in Gestad, knocks off the lefty Gaston, now faces another lefty in Del Bonus, two guys who don't have overwhelming weapons, but will certainly push him physically. Going to be fascinating to see how he bounces back after three tough matches last week uh, in uh, Bestowed, but Again, that's really my takeaways, I would say, from all of the action that unfolded o- over the course in Bastad. I mean, I thought Karatsev looked fine. You know, Laszlo Jura, always a tough out on the clay courts. But really, those are my takeaways from week one of our two weeks of action happening uh, over in Switzerland. Of course, that was not our uh, in Sweden. Excuse me, that Bastad is in Sweden. Gestad is in Switzerland. So we were in the Swedish part. We now move over to Switzerland. I get my swas mixed up from time to time. I do apologize for that fact. I also, again, I'm, I'm not running on the most sleep here going into this mini break podcast, but I know seven days is too long to not offer you all an update on everything happening in the professional tennis world. That said, we're writing this off as the excuses podcast. We're, we're getting all of our excuses out of the way here this week before we get back to the sort of content all of you listeners deserve and have grown accustomed to from us here at Cracked Rackets over the course of the past five years. With that said, though, time to move on some of the other action we saw last week. I'm going to go much quicker through the rest of these events as, look, I mean, how much is there left to take away from 2022 grass court play? I would argue not that much. That said, 
certainly one of the the storylines that will transcend the 2022 season when we look back at it three, five, seven, ten years from now has been the rise of 25-year-old American Maxime Cressy. Cressy, arguably the hottest player to start the season in January. You go all the way back to him, you know, coming through qualifying to make the final in Melbourne at the start of the season, reaches the round of 16 in Australia as well before getting knocked out in four sets by eventual finalist and world number one, Denise. Medvedev now was a struggle for him on the clay courts. No doubt about that. You look for Cressy went five and seven overall, including victories in qualifying during this 2022 clay court season. But credit to Cressy, who went and played qualifying at the Monte Carlo Masters, who went and played qualifying and got in through the Madrid Masters, played qualifying in Rome as well. Didn't skip out and go play hard court, lower level events in other locations of the world. He understands if he wants to be world number one, which by the way, Max, I know every player says they want to be world number one. Max Cressy means it when he says, I'm going to be world number one. Now, whether he gets there or not isn't entirely in his control because there are a lot of other really good players out there on the ATP tour. But I'll tell you this, I think all of us are 100 percent certain, maybe even 110 percent, dare I say, that Max Cressy at some point in his career will be the best version of himself. You look for the 25-year-old who is just exceptional throughout an 11-4 and run on the grass courts this season, loses, you know, after qualifying, loses a round of 32 match in three sets uh, to Hubi Hurricots in Halle. Then, you know, first round after coming through quali. So I think we agree. That's not a bad loss. He loses 6-7-7-6-7-6 to Dom Stricker. First grass court match of the year in Stuttgart. Stricker's made an ATP quarterfinal on grass courts before the young lefty, in my opinion, one of the rising talents on the ATP tour. I don't view that as a bad loss. I understand if you want to, but I mean, after that, Cressy making the final in Eastbourne beats Opelka. Evans, Nori, Draper before getting knocked out by Taylor Fritz. Then, you know, beats FAA. First round of Wimbledon. He draws the number six seed. He matches and answers the question, knocking him off before a tough four-set loss to Jack Sock. But, you know, to go from that sort of hype, that sort of run during the grass court season, you have all of this momentum on your side. He comes as the number four seed to Newport and just, you know, cruises on his way to the title. Was broken once prior to the final now was broken three times in the final. It's actually a very funky final between he and Sasha Bublik. You look overall in the match, I believe Bublik actually had more total points. No, no, no. Cressy in the end, 96 total points to Bublik's uh, 93. But you know, Bublik served better, certainly, than Cressy on the day, at least from a first serve perspective. Bublik, 10 aces, made 61% of his first serves, won 78% of his first serve points actually had fewer double faults than his opponent. One of the rare times that happens. Cressy, 14 aces against 13 double faults. Only made 52% of his first serves, but I mean, was just so relentless. Kept attacking the net over and over and over again, whether it be with the chip in charge as a returner, of course, the serve and volley as a server. The thing that's so impressive with Maxime Cressy is how well he covers the court. And I would implore all of you to go watch a young Pete Sampras play. Maybe not even a young Pete, but a, you know, prior to the age of 27, Pete Sampras, because as he got older, the knees became a little bit more creaky. He became a little bit less fluid in the outer thirds of the court, much more efficient as a spot server, as a serve and volleyer. But Go watch young Pete and the athleticism he had, the fluidity in the outer thirds, his ability to just shock you with some on-the-run magic. Max Cressy has that quality 
to him where it's you know it, it's shocking every time he lands a forehand passing shot and if I'm his opponent I'm approaching to that forehand wing every single time because Cressy's on the run backhand is good it's compact there's just again I know these are synonyms not a lot of moving parts he doesn't think as much when he's running and hitting that ball uh, running and hitting through that backhand wing the forehand there's a little hitch the forehand, there's a little bit more hesitation, and it did feel like a, a, a lot of times Sasha Bublik actually successfully attacked that forehand wing of Cressy, only for Cressy to come up with some sort of ridiculous, you know, framed ball that ultimately dropped good, or, you know, a framed first volley that he just uses his six foot six body to get his hands on and trickle over the net. It's never the cleanest tennis. There is some shades of Jensen Brooksby in Cressy in in that you wonder to yourself how replicable is Cressy's success from this season moving forward. But look, when the mic's hot, the mic's hot. And right now, Max Cressy holding 89.2% of the time. That number a good for third on the ATP Tour right now. Excuse me, fourth. It trails just Kyrgios, Isner, and Opelka. It's good company to keep. You know, it's slightly ahead of Matteo Berrettini. That's how well Max Cressy served this season. Now, he's never going to be a superstar from a break percentage standpoint, but 13.2 break percentage is better than Opelka. It's better than Isner. It's a, li- or, you know, it's a little worse than Kyrgios, but it's right in, around in that range to where, again, when you're hitting aces on 15% of your serves, he just offers no rhythm to opponents. And Again, with the confidence he plays, with the relentlessness with which he attacks, and then the size and the speed with which he has. Yeah, the forehand's never going to be the most aesthetically pretty shot, but it's he's not just a servant volleyer. There's more there. There has to be more there for Cressy to be up to number 33, a new career high in the rankings as he is. And by the way, Max Cressy right now, 23rd in the points race. Do you know he's the, the, the third best American via this 2022 season. If you go by the points right now, Taylor Fritz ninth in the points race. Riley Opelka 22nd. It's not Tommy Paul. It's not John Isner. It's not Korda. It's not Tiafo. It's not Nakashima. It's freaking Maxime Cressy. 23rd in the points race. Third best American this season. Earns his first ATP title. Has now made three finals here this season. His first three ATP finals in Melbourne, in Eastbourne, now here in Newport as well. Gets over the finish line 7-6 in the third. He's now uh, 16-19, and interestingly enough, in tiebreakers. But earns a clutch one when he needs it. And, you know, again, beats Isner, beats Stevie J, two guys he would have grown up watching or being familiar with as a former college tennis player, as a big surfer in the John Isner model. And then, you know, out plus one, Sasha Bublik. Bublik, a guy you think has more skills on the court, is a little bit more comfortable with his forehand, with his backhand, can do more things ground stroke wise than Cressy can. And yet Cressy was better at executing his game plan than anyone else. And the discipline it takes him to execute that game plan, so impressive. Ultimately, again, into his the winner's circle for the first time at the ATP Tour level, now up to number 33 in the world. Just absolutely remarkable stuff from Maxime Cressy. But hey, credit to Sasha Bublik as well. Maintains his spot in the top 50, currently sitting at number 39. You look for him, another solid grass court season. You know, who are the losses for Bublik during this grass court season? Murray, Chilich, Fritz, Tiafo in four sets in a third round Wimbledon match. So let's be clear here. Four, you know, three out of five, always going to favor Francis Tiafo. Third round of Wimbledon at that point for a guy like Bublik. I don't think any loss can be that bad of a loss. But again, the loss is Murray, Chilich, Fritz, Tiafo, Cressy. 
probably is done playing Americans moving forward on these grass courts, but that's a good grass court season for Sasha Bublik on a surface where he should always have success. And, you know, you look for Bublik now overall 31 and 30 in his last 52 weeks, 22 and 18 overall on the year. Look, when he's inconsistent, you know, he lost four straight first round matches on the clay courts and he's 12 and seven overall in first round matches this season. But, you know, 12, you know, went 20 and nine overall in first round matches last year after going under 500 in first round matches every season from 2017 to 2020. It's getting better. It's getting a little bit more consistent. He's beating who he's supposed to beat. And, you know, you could tell he really wanted to beat Cressy. All right, I'll do this. One minute on this, and then we're moving on. Players do not love Max Cressy. I think fans love Cressy. I think media loves the story that is Max Cressy, the outlier that is his game style, the ability to serve and volley, the throwback to you know times past that are cherished by so many, not only in media, but as tennis fans. I'll tell you this. I'm not going to say who. There are a lot of players who I speak with who are not fond of Max Cressy. Do you want to know why? It's the arrogance. It's the confidence. You have to be arrogant. You have to play confident tennis if you're going to serve in volley, if you're going to play on your terms, if you're going to believe so vehemently as he does that you will be a world number one someday. And the issue, I think, for Maxime Cressy is that he always finds himself you know, again, it just feels like every time he's impressed, they always ask him, why do you think you're going to be world number one? And to his credit, and this is why media loves him, he's always going to give a candid answer. He's always going to explain why he believes in himself. Look, I mean, again, all the credit in the world to Sasha Boop, uh, excuse me, to Maxime Cressy. That belief in himself has manifested a top 35 ranking. Again, this is a guy who believed the same, had the same mindset when he was riding the bench for UCLA his freshman season, now finds himself in the top 30. I'll tell you what, the res- or top 35, the results validate his confidence. Like, I do think there will be a newfound respect from every player moving forward. That said, he's serving and volleying. You know, he's shanking some forehand volleys over the net. He's just getting by by the skin of his teeth. No one would accuse Maxime Cressy of playing pretty tennis. And I think unequivocally that pisses off his opponents. And I do wonder if that tension, you know, if we start to see people take some shots at Cressy as he's serving and volleying, trying to unload serves at his body. And certainly Sasha Bublik taking a shot, calling him lucky in the post-match press conference. I don't think Bublik's the only player who feels that way. That said, the results speak for themselves. And so, you know, again, Max Cressy personality watch, almost as fun as Max Cressy ranking watch. Just wanted to throw that little tidbit out there for all of you listeners and, you know, validate the fact that you're listening to the 48th minute of this mini break podcast. With that said, look at the other semifinalists. Isner going to Isner. I mean, good result for him. How about Jason Kubler, though? One of the rising, you know, quiet stars of this 2022 season. The 29-year-old in the midst of a breakout campaign right now. Currently 96 in the rankings. Five off his career high, which he reached of 91 back in October 2018. He's healthy. He's playing the best tennis of his career. Wins the Little Rock Challenger title at the end of May. Reaches the final the very next week in Orlando. Knocked out by Ebing Wu, who, by the way, we're going to talk about the former junior U.S. Open champion. We'll talk about him, Ben Shelton, the Rome Challenger, the Indianapolis Challenger. Going to do all of that Thursday on the Great Shot Podcast with David Gertler to ensure that we're providing coverage of every level unfolding right now in the tennis world. But, I mean, again, wins Little Rock. 
Finals Orlando, comes through qualifying in Wimbledon to make the round of 16 before getting knocked out by Taylor Fritz. Semifinals in Newport. This is the best stretch in Jason Kubler's career. And you look for Kubler, who's 96 in the rankings. He's 78th, though, in the points race. The, you know, again, 29-year-old in the midst of the best season in his career. And just physically such a tough out. Proficient on the forehand wing, the backhand wing. He's moving extraordinarily well. He's swinging freely. And then again, 40-30 in a game. 30 all points. You know, the deuce points. He's just winning them because he's playing more confidently than his opponent. And, you know, for him to be down 6-5 in the third set when play was suspended in the round of 16 against Felix Ogier Aliasim in Newport. He's down 6-5, play suspended due to darkness. Has to come out the next day, not only hold serve, but try and take the tiebreaker as well after Felix had wrestled the momentum going into that nighttime break. And he's able to do just that. And I mean, how can you not credit Jason Kubler for that fact? You know, Then he beats a couple of fellow Aussies, guys who I'm sure he has matched up with time after time. Um, song credit to whoever wrote if you've lost and you look and I will find you time after time if you fall I will catch you I will be waiting time after time I don't know who wrote that song but I think we all know that lyric I would sing it but again I'm in the tennis channel offices I don't want to get kicked out this soon point being shout out to 29 year old Jason Kubler playing the best tennis of his career a worthy semi-finalist in Newport with that said that was your ATP action last week now I sincerely apologize as all of you listeners know I try to spend just as much time focusing on the ATP side of things as I do on the WT side of things. I just didn't have that much time to consume WTA tennis over the past five days. Didn't have that much time to consume ATP tennis either. I just happened to start watching those events prior to the WTA action last week. I had a little bit more of a foundation to build off of, but I do want to offer a quick rundown of what little action I was able to see last week on the WTA tour, and that starts in Lausanne with Petra Martic. I've always been a sneaky Petra Martic fan, and when I say that, I don't mean a fan of her results. I mean a fan of her game, of the tennis that she's capable of playing because, of course, I remain unbiased towards any player now. At least I like to think at this point I've removed all of my biases, unless you played at Michigan. If you played at Michigan, I'm always going to root for you a little bit harder. But you look for the 31-year-old Petra Martic, who earns her first WTA-level title since back in 2019 in Istanbul. Martic just was excellent finding the outer thirds of the court spreading the court into her bag of tricks knocking out Parisa's Diaz knocking out a very much informed Belinda Bencic ending the run of a very very much informed Caroline Garcia and then ultimately a 4-2 and two victory over Olga Danilovic to uh, earn the title in Lausanne you look for Martic with her victory back up to number 55 in the WTA rankings that's a critical place to be as we head towards the hardcourt summer because, of course, we've got two 1,000-level events coming up, right, in Cincinnati, in Canada. If you're outside the top 50, it's not guaranteed that you'll get directly into the main draw. You may have to play qualifying. And, of course, given the depth we see on the WTA Tour, you just don't want to have all those extra matches add up on your resume when you're trying to make a breakthrough run because of just how good every player is in the draw. It's not guaranteed that you're even going to get through qualifying with how good you know the players ranked in the 60s, the 70s are. Think about it. I think nowadays you'll have to beat like a Clara Tawson or an Ann Lee to get through qualifying at some of these events. 
that would be miserable to draw one of those players or even a Potapova or, you know, again, the the who knows where Karolina Mukova is right now in the rankings. She may, you know, I think she'll get in probably with protected rankings, but there's a world where she, you'd have to see like a her in the qualifying as well. And look for Petra Martic, it's been a better year here in 2022 has steadied the ship after a rough 2021 you look for her last season 15 and 21 overall on the year made just three quarterfinals in those 21 events you look for her now overall here this season 25 and 14 overall she's already made well I guess only two quarterfinals here this season but makes a semifinal and obviously the championship title run here in Lausanne had a quarterfinal run at a big event in Indian Wells earlier this season and you know round of 16 at Wimbledon also she's not going to get the points from that fact but she's just been better this season she's looked fitter she's moving the ball more confidently around the court that forehand has always been on the bigger side and you know it's funny to see her make a fourth round at Wimbledon you feel like the faster the surface the easier it is to attack that forehand wing but on these clay courts she's so fluid in and out of the corners and her ability to slice that backhand, keep it low, not give you anything to work with there. She just played on her terms and disrupted the rhythm of every opponent she came up against. And again, credit to her for winning her first title since 2019. Credit to Olga Danilovic as well. How about the 21-year-old serve into her first WTA Tour-level final since she won her inaugural title back in Moscow as a lucky loser back in 2018? You look for the 21-year-old Danilovic when she's been healthy. She's been damn near dominant over the last 52 weeks. Now, she has not been very healthy, but 22-9 and now overall in her last 52 since returning to the Tour at the start of May. She's 15-6 and here in 2022. That includes qualifying and making the second round in Roland Garros. Includes, you know, her for her qualifying in Lausanne. And, you know, she didn't have to face a single seed on her way to the final, but had to face the Kalinskayas of the world, the aforementioned Potapovas of the world, and, you know, was able to sift her way through some of the many talented young players on the WTA Tour to work her way to that final against Martic, watching Danilovic play. A, you know, always nice to watch a lefty. And it was fascinating, actually, to see the slice backhand of Petra Martic give the lefty Danilovic as much trouble as it did in that final. Uh, Look, I mean, there's a lot to like about Danilovic. Can generate some free points behind her serve. Now, we'll throw in a few more double faults than you'd like because she does play a little bit bigger on that serve, but just has weapons, has the movement. You look for the 21-year-old, again, despite not playing, you know, played 31 total matches over the last 52 weeks. She's still 106 in the rankings, and you feel like she is going to get some opportunities coming up over this North American hardcore summer. Maybe not Cincinnati or Toronto, but at some of the smaller events happening throughout the United States, right? Like, I know they don't host New Haven anymore, but wouldn't Danilovich make the perfect New Haven champion? That New Haven event, of course, used to be the WTA event, played the week before the U.S. Open. I could see Danilovich winning that New Haven title this year if that tournament were to happen. But of course, it's not happening. Nevertheless, building some momentum is the 21-year-old into the final in Lausanne. And, you know, you look at some of the other players who made runs. Shout out to Belinda Bencic, who, you know, again, just has been damn good throughout the course of this season. Finally healthy, able to play week after week after week. Good 
bounce back from her after a tough first round loss at Wimbledon to reach uh, the quarterfinals on a surface that she hasn't always been that comfortable in. Of course, a shout out to 21-year-old Anastasia Potapova, who reaches the semifinals in Lausanne. It's, you know, again, another big run for her on clay. She won her first WTA Tour level title earlier this season uh, in Istanbul. Uh, Obviously, you know, for her uh, to has now made what, you know, had huge runs back in 2018 as well, but, you know, now finally healthy, playing a full-time WTA tour-level schedule. You look for Potapova this season, who just, again, can do a, a little more power, a little more pop, pretty good at everything. You look for Potapova, 31-24 and 24 overall in her last 52 weeks, 22-15 and 15 overall uh, here in 2022. You look for her on the clay courts in particular, 16-6. and six. This is the surface she can thrive on moving forward because she just has a little bit more time to do all the things she does well. Heck of a run for her in Lausanne. And, you know, again, Danilovic, Martic, Potapova, Caroline Garcia, who is just back. I don't know how else to say it. The 28-year-old now, 31 and 23 overall in the year, but 20 and 13 here in 2022. I mean, you know, wins the Bad Hamburg title the week before Wimbledon, then uses that momentum to make the round of 16 at Wimbledon. Now rides that momentum to a semifinal in Lausanne. Again, she's just doing what she needs to do. And so, so impressed by the run uh, for Caroline Garcia. Of course, she was ranked as high as number four in the world back in 2018. She's now back into the WTA top 50, number 48 now. She just gets to set her schedule however she'd like moving forward. And how frequently do we discuss? That is everything on the ATP and WTA Tour. So shout out to Garcia. An impressive uh, week for her in Switzerland. With that said, again, I know I'm in summary mode here, not offering the most astute analysis. I do apologize for that fact. But, you know, I the, the tournament I watched the least of last week was in Budapest, where ultimately it was Bernard Pera, the lefty, 20 seven-year-old American earning the first WTA Tour level title of her career. It was her first WTA Tour level final as well. And you look for Para, who had to come through qualifying, but did not drop a set on her way to the title in Budapest. That title comes after Para had lost five consecutive matches, uh, dating back to her run to the Karlsruhe 125 final at the start of May, she had lost five consecutive matches. Strasbourg, Roland Garros, Makarska, 125, Wimbledon, first round, Contract Seville, 125 as well. Five consecutive from that to go into qualifying to win the event now, you know, Back firmly in the top 100 of the WTA rankings, up to number 81, which isn't great, but it's better. You look for uh, Bernarda Pera now overall on the year. I mean, earned seven victories last week. She was 12 and 13 on the year. Excuse me. She was 11 and 13 on the year. Going into last week, earned seven victories and then earned an eighth consecutive victory by beating Elena Gabriela Russa. A very nice win in straight sets to kick off her Hamburg campaign. Look, I've always liked Pera's game. I know her record against the top 50, against top 20 opponents isn't the best. She's, for her career, 18-42 and 42 against the top 50, 2-19 and 19 against the top 20. But, you know, again, in those 21 matches uh, against top 20 opponents, I believe, like, nine, eight or nine of them. Yeah, I'm looking at it now. Nine of them have gone to three sets, and 
I mean, again, I'm, I'm thinking of all the times I've seen Bernardo Pera play close matches. The one that always stands out most to me is probably the match she played against Serena in August 2020 in Lexington. You know, to start off, you know, that Lexington event was the first post-pandemic event on the ATP or WTA calendar. That's always one that's going to stick out to me. The three sets she played against Ashley Barty last year, first-round Roland Garros, feels particularly notable because Barty went on to retire uh, from the tournament, of course, after that match, but I mean, Bernardo Pera is just a grinder. She hustles. She fights, whether it be at the ITF level, whether it be at the WTA Tour level, just again, going to do whatever it takes to sustain her top 100 ranking to put her in a position to where she can continue to play Grand Slam after Grand Slam main draw. And, you know, again, dare I say, make this a career, make a significant living, which is what you get when you're making main draw after main draw at the Slam. So credit to the qualifier, Pera earning her first title, knocking out Alexandra Krunic uh, of Serbia in the final. The 28-year-old Krunic, currently 75 in the rankings, reaches her first WTA final since 2018 in the Netherlands. And, you know, again, talk about a big lifeline for Krunic, who you look now overall here, 43-26 and 26 here in her last 52, 19-17 this season, but has finally been able to play a full WTA tour-level schedule once again. And look, qualifies in Birmingham, makes the round of 16, qualifies in Eastbourne, now finals here in Budapest. Lost first round in Wimbledon, but the last three tour-level events have all gone well. And then for Krunic today, nice 4-2 win in Hamburg over Lesicki. Things trending in the upwards direction for the 29-year-old. With that said, your semifinalist there, Anna Bondar, Yulia Putin-Seva, uh, also making runs. You had French Open quarterfinalist, semifinalist, semifinalist Martina Trevisan knocked out in the quarterfinals by Bondar. Trevisan then forced to retire this week or withdraw from the action in Hamburg. Worth noting because with that in mind, we now transition quickly and I'll just do this very quickly. We'll get more into this tomorrow. I'll have Nate Walrath from Tennis Point joining me. I'll also have three days of calls under my belt, but to just quickly rapid fire takeaways from the week's action we've seen unfold thus far. I'll start on the women's side of the equation in Hamburg. Of course, always fun to turn to our friends at Tennis Abstract to see what the forecast looks like, who's favored to take home all the titles. Certainly, you know, was notable that uh, number two seed Daria Kasatkina knocked out today. Was this match today? Was it earlier today? I, am I that far out of the loop that I didn't get to watch Kasatkina's three-set loss to Katarina Sinyakova? Sinyakova's always dangerous. And, you know, Katarina Sinyakova's permanently that unseated player who's typically ranked between what? 35 and 55 who you just want no part of dealing with if you're a seated player and you're shot for uh and you're in your first round shot at a, at a grand slam and look I mean the results for Sinyakova haven't been the best this season 11 and 13 overall lost four matches in a row between the end of Roland Garros and the start of Wimbledon but you know again Kasatkina or Sinyakova also has wins this season over Radakanu over Teichman, over Martic, over Kalnina, now over Kasatkina as well. She's just that dangerous when she's clicking right. Yeah, it's flat. Yeah, the margins are low, but when she's swinging freely, she's swinging freely. So that's an impressive victory for Sinyakova to knock off the number two seed. I mentioned the nine seed, Elena Gabriela Russa, already knocked out of the event as well. Six seeded Varvara Gracheva, knocked out by the aforementioned Anastasia Potapova. Nice three set victory for the young Russian. You look across the board, the things that seem most notable 
at least for now. Top seed Annette Conteve, who is desperate for any sorts of victories before she's got to defend all sorts of points down the home stretch of this season. You look uh, for Conteve since the end of or since the end of making that Doha final. She's what three and five, four and six overall since making the Doha final at the end of February. Now she's dealt with COVID. She's dealt with various injuries, but. Obviously, a four and six stretch on anyone's resume, it's going to be really hard to sustain a top 10 ranking when you go through that sort of lull in terms of results. You know, tough first round test for her in Arena Barra, who's, of course, always a tough out um, on the clay courts. That's going to be a fun match for the top seed, Conteve. Again, 26.2% favorite to win after that. It's Sinyakova, 14%. Bernarda Para. 13.3%. That's a nice boost after last week's title run. Then Krachikova, who earned a much-needed first-round victory over lucky loser Susan Lemons uh, for Krachikova. That was her first victory. Oh, I guess she won a match at Wimbledon, but that was her first clay court victory since winning the French Open, I think, last season. So shout-out to Krachikova slowly finding her legs back under her. And, you know, again, a lot of fun seeds in action, whether it's Kontave, whether it's Krachikova, Alexandra Sasnovich, and then you know all sorts of young Russians and young players who continue to work their way up the rankings. That's your women's action in Hamburg. Of course, you also have women's action going on in Palermo this week. And, you know, you look at the draw, pretty solid draw, considering we've also got Hamburg going on now. Top seed Martina Trevisan has pulled out of the event, but you've got Two-seed Yulia Putensiva coming off of the semifinal last week. Sarah Cerebez-Tormo, who earned a good victory today over Anna Bogdan, your number four seed. You've got Jung Shui, your three-seed Caroline Garcia, continuing to strike while the mic is hot. You've got the ever-talented young lefty out of China, Wang Shiyu, who in my opinion is probably the player to watch in the draw this week. You've also got Wan Xinyu, the talented young Chinese woman, the righty, I should say. They, I know Ben Rothenberger likes uh, Ben Rothenberger. Hey, great shot. Ben Rothenberg. See, that's how tired I am, folks, that I even mentioned up Ben's name. Ben likes to refer to Wang Xiyu, Wang Xinyu as lefty and righty, respectively, uh, so as to differentiate in their two games. But, you know, they're, they're both in the draw. You've got former world junior number one and one of my rising stars, Diane Perry, who has a very winnable first round match against Lauren Davis. And should she win that match would uh, face the winner of Jamie Forley or Yulia Putensiva. I think she'd have Putensiva on upset alert. That's actually my gift to all of you. My upset special look for Diane Perry to knock off two seed Yulia Putensiva. Uh, if they do match up this week. But again, fun action over in Palermo, according to Tennis Abstract. The uh, Oh, interesting. Yeah, it is Sarah Cerebez-Tormo. Okay, never mind. Cerebez-Tormo, 19.5% favorite. Then Putensiva, 14.2%. Garcia, 14%. Uh, after that, you'd get to the 12.8% of six-seed arena, Camilla Begu. Worth noting, Martina Trevisan, despite being the top seed, was not considered the favorite to win the event. But that's the action on the women's side to quickly go through the men's action. And again, we'll talk more about all of this tomorrow when Nate Walrith joins us for a Wednesday edition of Tennis Point Tuesday. But let's start with the men's side action in Hamburg because we had a bunch of upsets here uh, on day two of the event. You lost your number three seed. You lost your number eight seed. You had you know, a bunch of third set breakers. We almost lost top seed Carlos Alcaraz as well. It's a loaded draw at the ATP 500 in Germany this week. You look uh, again, top seed Carlos Alcaraz, who is your overwhelming favorite, according to Tennis Abstract, 46.7% favorite 
uh, chance to advance. Dropped the first set 6-3, but then 6-1-7-6. He survives against Nicola Kuhn. Uh, you look for Alcaraz, who hadn't played a match in about two weeks, two and a half weeks, three weeks since making that fourth round at Wimbledon. Gets his legs under him. Did not look great. Did not serve well. Was very sloppy with his plus one forehand. But also Kuhn played so well to start the match. Was swinging so freely. And, you know, it could be very fun should they both win. Alcaraz would face a second round date with Sebastian Baez. You feel like that's a second week matchup at the French Open for seasons to come over the next decade. Both guys 21 years old or younger. So that would be a very, very fun match. I mean, look, it's fun matches across the board. Fonini who has fallen, Fabio Fonini has fallen out of the top 50 for the first time in a decade, folks, more than a decade. He's 34th, by the way, in all-time career earnings, has made $16.7 million in his career. One wonders, should he fall too far outside the top 50 to the point where he has to play qualifying, and he had to play qualifying matches last week and bestowed, um, you know, first time he's had to play qualifying at an ATP event since Paris in 2012. Is he going to be willing to do that? Would he be willing to go play challenger events? Now, certainly, given how many are in Italy, maybe he would be willing to play the challengers, but got a much-needed 7-6 in the third victory over Alias Badene, the two of them beefing after the match. Badene did not like that Fonini didn't concede a call in the breaker. One all, Badene thought he hit an ace-T. Fonini said, no, you did not. Here's the ball mark. The chair umpire agreed with Fonini. Both guys get into each other's faces after the match. Badene saying, this always happens when we play, uh, seemingly indicating that the source is not the closeness of the line calls, but it's Fabio Fonini that draws the majority of his ire. That says Fonini now going to face another guy who won a third set breaker, Karen Hatchinov, who survived against the always dangerous big hitting Jan Leonard Struff. Now you had some people cruise. Carino Busta, one and two, under an hour. Holger Runa, uh, who cruises, uh, excuse me, he, he cruises in under an hour. You had some other uh, good victories across the board as well, but some upsets also. Talent Greekspor, who wins a challenger title last week. Straight set victory for him over Holger Runa. Runa has now lost six consecutive matches dating back to that quarterfinal loss to Kasper Ruud in, at Roland Garros. Just, I mean, again, a credit to Greekspor, who has also been one of the rising stars. Quietly, probably the most improved player over the past 12 months, or at least results-wise. On the ATP Tour last 16, 18 months, you know, 26 years old, definite, you know, firmly establishes himself in the top 50. He's did everything but that Aslan Karatsev did except win an ATP title or make a slam semifinal run. But he's done 90% of what Karatsev accomplished, and we all went crazy about that. We should get more crazy about Talon Griegspor than we are, but it's going to be a really fun matchup in round two for Griegspor. He's going to take on Borna Chorich. Chorich seemingly getting healthier. With every passing week, won a challenger about a month ago. Good three-set victory for him. Come from behind over Laszlo Jur. Uh, certainly, you look elsewhere. Davidovich Fokina, nice win for him over Vandesen Schkulp. He's now going to take on qualifier Joseph Kovalek, who had a very nice win over the impressive Max Hans Rayberg, the 18-year-old German. Uh, looked looked like he was cruising up a set and up a break 4-2, but Kovalik flipped the script and just imposed his physicality on him. And then, you know, your other upset, Emil Rusevori, who's Another one of those breakthrough players of the year earns his first top 20 victory in his last nine matches against the top 20 and earns the biggest clay court win of his career. Straight set wins over Diego Schwartzman, who respectfully, while the results may look fine, Schwartzman's Schwartzman's fallen off a bit this year. There's no denying that. Eye test says it. Results sort of say it as well. 
Not ready to have that conversation, though. But Rusevori Musetti tomorrow might be one of my favorite matches. And then, you know, again, Rublev in action. You look across the board, we can get to the percentages. Alcaraz, the overwhelming favorite, 46.7. Then comes Rublev, 14.5. Then the tennis abstract forecast doesn't really give that many other people a chance of winning the title. Karina Busta, 6.3. Davidovich Fokina, 6.1. Musetti, 5%. Like, come on. That's, that's pretty generous as you look at that Hamburg draw. But, uh, of course, beyond what's going on in Hamburg this week, we've also got more ATP action in Gestad. Heck of a three-set win from Dominic Team, as mentioned, to survive and advance. A lot of good, a lot of good players located in this draw. Yet an upset win for qualifier Yannick Hanifman, the former USC All-American, a winner over Christian Garin earlier today. Alex Richard, the former standout player uh, at the University of Virginia, a wild card into a home country event for him. Richard, a victory over Jao Sosa uh, to advance to the round of 16, capitalizing on any momentum he's built over the past month in particular, getting through qualifying to play that main draw at Wimbledon. But, you know, again, on the clay courts, number four seed Albert ramos Vanola is always going to be a tough out. Matteo Berrettini back on the clay courts. He earns a nice win over Carbea Spania. He's uh, the second favorite to capture the title, 33.9% trailing. Only Kasparud, your top seed, 37.7% earned a nice victory over Thomas Moton- Martin Echeverry to kick off his campaign. Some other dangerous youngsters, you know, Dom Stricker, Yuri Lachechka, Helmi Munar, who's not that young anymore in the draw. My birthday brother, Juan Pablo Varias, very impressive. Straight set victory over Lorenzo Sanego. And in fact, let me look this up. Juan Pablo Varias. No, he's not into the top 100. I'll tell you this. The moment my birthday brother cracks the top 100, we're going to get him on this podcast. I'm going to beg uh, him because, again, I'm going to be like, come on. We're the same. Same birthday. You're just far more athletic than I could ever be. Uh, That will be my pitch to him. But again, you look at the numbers, I don't think it's going to surprise anyone. The tennis abstract has Rude and Berrettini as significant favorites. Rude, 37.7% chance of winning the event. Berrettini, 33.9%. But with all of that said, again, it's been a while, but we're back. Our 15-minute mini break. Did you expect anything else on our return? I imagine not. Of course, again, we're going to be locked and loaded with more podcasts over the course of the next week, whether it be this mini break podcast where we'll break down everything happening on the ATP WTA tour levels. We'll talk with our friend David Gertler about everything happening at the ATP challenger level later this week on the Great Shot podcast feed. Continue to check in with John Parsons, Chris Hallioris on all things collegians in the pro as well. We're locked and loaded. We're refocused. We're excited for this home stretch of the 2022 tennis season. Now, of course, I guess it's not the home stretch yet. It's really the summer hardcore stretch. Home stretch comes after the U.S. Open. But of course, if you want to follow any of this action, you can hear me broadcasting many of these matches on T2, the Samsung Alternative, new channel launched by our friends at Tennis Channel. It's myself, Gil Gross, spearheading all of that coverage, all of it directed by super producer Mike Haston, my boy Griffin in the booth as well. And again, such a privilege. Uh, an honor, truthfully, uh, to have that opportunity to be on the call, to be here in Santa Monica and enjoy these Tennis Channel studios. But of course, as always, again, if you're looking for any of our coverage, you can find it all on our website, crackrackets.com. A shout out, as always, to super producer Danny Westoff for the of an editing job he does day in, day out, making all of our content possible. Shout out as well to our friends at Tennis Point, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15 with all that said for our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point. From all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break. We'll talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.